Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We go from chapter 7, we, you know, we have the alienated eye, to the cosmic and corporate subject in chapter 8. In chapter 7, we have a living death. And in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is there. There is no Holy Spirit in chapter 7. But the Holy Spirit is the theme of chapter 8, mentioned 19 times. And where chapter 7 focused on describing the dynamics of the body of death, the struggle, chapter 8 counters each of these Pauline categories constituting the subject that is caught up in the lie, but now described as with the work of the Spirit. Characterized by peace in 8.6, in contrast between, you know, the living death of chapter 7, he describes it, new life in the Spirit. And so we have an answer, you know, who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul's answer is 8.2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets you free from the law of sin and death. The fear and slavery, and fear maybe an unconscious fear, but a controlling fear, an enslaving fear, that worked through the deception, through one law pitted against another, that is voided. We have the law of life in the Spirit, but that's that's a very different kind of law. Chapter 7 is focused on I, and everybody knows, you know, it's just the word for ego, ego, and desire. And there is no I, there is, there. the word desire appears, but only uh, he's talking about it, uh, referencing back to chapter 7. But his description of desire is focused on sight. And this would be the way, this is a very Lacanian or Zizekian understanding. And Paul is using the word blepo, the word for sight, in, in connection with desire. I don't mean literally the physical, I mean, it can, it is connected to seeing, but I think the visualization that even a blind person visualizes that this kind of organ is at work. I think this is connected to shame. You know, they saw in Genesis 3 and were ashamed. I heard, I was afraid, I was naked, I hid. This is uh, suddenly seeing in a new way. And this then, what if you had to say, what is what displaces I and desire? I think the word hope is there. Uh, and hope is not focused on the seen, but the unseen. And this then brings about a conformity, and Paul uses the word in verse 29, the image of the Son. You know, he uses the, the imagery, but he's using it in a new way. Imagery has taken on a new meaning here. It is not an image or object for the eyes, but occupies the subject position in place of the ego and a reconstitution of the subject. We're no longer organized by sight, by desire, but by 
this unseen hope. And as a result, I just, I think that's why I disappears in chapter 8. I have been crucified, as Paul says in Galatians. You mentioned that the I is, you said, I think it in your sermon, most recently released. What I is it? The universal I that's crucified. That struck me. And that's what you're talking about here, the, um, the constructed I, right? Yeah, and... And this gets, you know, when somebody, you know, Brian, David, you guys working with people all the time. You know what? People will come and they're going to tell you the things that they're most ashamed of. And this is what happened to Freud. You know, people that come and tell them about their shameful things. And, of course, Freud got bored with it because he said it all sounds the same. In other words, what people imagine is their most essential to themselves, the center of their own I, is in some way connected to these deep secrets that they're highly ashamed of, but are just, in Freud's description, a kind of mechanical repetition of the same thing over and over. That the deepest secrets that people have are identical. So when we say I, I think this is part of the deception, that we would cling and imagine that our neuroses, our you know, our little, uh, our, our the little shameful things that we we kind of picture that as the organizing center of who we are. And I think that what Paul is describing is no, that that has nothing to do with who you are. That's not even a that's that's not even a subject. That's been crucified. I don't know how helpful that is to people that are suffering. But it seems like it would be to say, you know, that, that thing that you that's that's killing you, that ain't you. That has nothing to do with who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I would think that would give great comfort to people. I think that's what Paul is talking about. There's healing to be had in the hope of Christ. That's what I mean. That when you said universal eye, that's what I meant. Yeah, I think we can, in other words, I think we can describe the structure of this thing, that it always functions the same way. And that's people like Freud and Gerard, and they're describing how this, you know, this thing that we would imagine is the center of, it, it, it is captive and enslaved and always looks the same. And this is why Freud, you know, somebody asked him, why don't you do a psychoanalysis of uh, Dostoevsky? And he said, why, why would I do that? Yeah, I know he was a drunk. I know he had a gambling problem. But that's the least interesting thing about him. That just looks like everybody else. What's interesting about Dostoevsky is the creative genius that we have in his novel. Yeah. Chapter 7 is suffering under the law, the oppression and suffering under the law, versus chapter 8, we are co-heirs with Christ. We have suffering in both chapter 7 and 8, but the work of the law, I think, is a suffering that, uh, as you described it, Jeff, I think it was you, uh, you really can't get out of this thing. 
In other words, the way that we would cure the suffering is by intensifying it. We would try to find meaning in our suffering. This is partly why I, I know Lacanian psychoanalysis may seem a little perverse to you. But I think in this, you know, this is Lacan's therapy. You know, when you go to a Lacanian therapist, well, you, you imagine when we go when we go to a therapist, what are we looking for? We're looking for the therapist to tell us the meaning of our suffering. And in Lacanian understanding, that is your the cause of your problem. You think that somebody can tell you the meaning of this. There is no meaning. And as long as you imagine that you can attach some depth of meaning to your suffering, that's the cause of your sickness. The suffering in chapter 8 is very different, you know, there, that we do away with the agonistic struggle, the who will rescue me, and now it's a sharing in the suffering of Christ, which makes one a co-heir with Christ. And this suffering is up to and including martyrdom. In other words, it's not it's terrible suffering, but it's not that interior agonistic struggle. And then the body of sin, the body of sin and death, he, he uses both phrases in chapter six and seven. I think they're parallel phrases. Uh, and we did this last week. You know, the word body, I think, is key here. What is a body? Well, it's this mediating you know, body is just who you are. It's the subject, but it's the, the mediation of the environment. Uh, we did a bit of Wittgenstein. You know, I think this is Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein rediscovers a Pauline or a Hebraic understanding of the body, that language is embodied. I think in a Greek understanding, the mind is over and against the body, and language stands is part of the mind over and against, you know, the, the, the law of the, the body. And I, I think the, the correct understanding is a, a Wittgensteinian understanding. No, we were language is, and we could say this in another way, the soul is our body. We're embodied in our souls. Actually, that's a very Hebraic idea. You know, we tend to think of the soul, equate the soul and the spirit. But actually, the, the soulish part of us is the bodily part of us. But the point is that body of death is displaced in resurrection life of the spirit, which is not a departure from the material body or material reality, but the beginning of the redemption of, you know, a cosmic redemption begins with the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of the cosmos is attached there. And so life in the flesh is not referring to life in the body. You know, this is Calvin. I think any brand of Christianity that reads chapter 7 as the normal Christian life is stuck in the flesh, right? I mean, how could you say it otherwise? I don't know that they would deny that. But I think we can do better than that. In chapter 8, Paul is describing enacted resurrection right, that this resurrection life begins now. And there is the defeat of the sin principle of the flesh. I did a bit of this last week, Jeff, with Galatians. Galatians is kind of interesting because it ties, you know, here we have law 
equated with, you know, the flesh. And of course, we in Galatians, we know that's, you know, law and flesh are equated in circumcision. Quite literally, Paul is going to accuse the Judaizers of being dependent upon the flesh. Well, literally, they, they're dependent on a piece of flesh. So for Paul, law and flesh are connected. But also the cosmic principles, air, earth, fire, water, the cosmic building blocks that are pitted against one another in a dialectic. And so Paul is picturing these antinomies that are undone, no longer Jew and Gentile, slave and free, circumcision and uncircumcision, law and no law. In other words, those antinomies are the building blocks of the universe that Paul is undoing. We've entered into another order of reality. I think that's the Greek universe, but I think that's universal, and those of you guys who are more anthropologists than I am might argue with me here. I'm presuming that you're going to find the antinomies in every culture. I just happened to be, I, I've been very interested in the movie, the Scorsese movie that is going to be released. I think it may have been released today. Killers of the Flower Moon. Did you see it, Jeff? And so Too I started. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it's a horror story. It's a, it's a horror story. I, I can't imagine anything more evil than this film, than this, I mean, this historical event. But anyway, I got interested in Osage religion. And I went back, and the Osage do the same thing that I think, you, you know, you have the moon and you have the sun. The moon is darkness, feminine, death, and the sun is male, light, and life. And the two are pitted against one another in a dialectic. I do think that what the Greeks did with their building blocks of the universe, I presume that all people's work in and through these antinomies. This is Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and this is the genius of Hegel, that he's describing this universal thing. I think it is universal. But, of course, not in the way that Hegel thought. He thought this was the way that God himself, that God himself is in a dialectic unfolding in history, that, that through something and nothing that God is becoming fully fully himself that is the body of death the the law the flesh the building the the cosmic principles are overcome i don't think we have to do the the antagonistic agonistic struggle but i don't think there's a way out of it other than the res the, the resolution that we have here am i being too narrow-minded in this i just want to know how you how to uh escape seeing the world then according to the law of sin and death right like because the i think i mean like deconstruction i guess would be one way of doing it where you find the the you take the binary and you find the the way that they it actually all collapses um but which is i think why some of the deridian thought has been very helpful for a certain kind of uh, Christian ethics, but it's also a hard way to live. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
Well, I, I think Derrida, yeah, captures it. And Derrida's just doing Hegel. He says as much. But Derrida has some brilliant phrases that, and he talks a lot about the law. You know, the law is the law. It's a tautologist thing uh, that it just establishes itself in and through a kind of power relationship. And of course, Derrida did talk about the Messiah. But the Messiah can't really come in Derrida's understanding because he's, an, I guess, I don't know, I guess he's an atheist. The debate is, you know, is he really an atheist? I don't know. But I think even Derrida saw you can't escape this thing apart from a messianic intervention. I think as Christians, oh, we believe that happened, and it is happening, that we can see the world differently. We can deconstruct the idols, but the idols are all around us. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of postmodern thought. I think it it takes us there. Just describe what comes to mind passing through this threshold from death to life, orientation from law to the death of Christ slash new, new life, looking at a couple of random in this chapter, Christians must deepen their faith continually and become more and more psychologically aware of that union. I'm just casting out to describe this threshold, this uh, portal from non-belief to belief. And there's any number of dynamics that could, that are involved, but I'm just tossing it out. I mean, I'll just toss out reading of scripture with uh, examples of Christian living witnessing how Christians demonstrate their love uh, of Christ for each other. I'm just I'm just asking for just a I guess just a short list. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's it. And actually I may have been quoting in that portion of the chapter the Catholic I, I was using a lot I, I want to say Fraser, but it, his name's not Fraser. I, I, who is a Jesuit and he's talking about you know, Paul is talking about in chapter 6, realize your baptism. He's saying, you know, this is what happened to you, now realize it. And I think the way you're describing it, that it is a entry into a, corpor a, a corporate body, I think suddenly we can have a relationship with other people, I think people are, as long as we're in chapter 7, you know, there's nobody, there's only one person in chapter 7, 7. And any other person is a threat, right? Abel is always going to be a threat. And as much as shameful is for it, for us to admit it, we're all very closely acquainted with jealousy, envy. You know, we, we know... It is this thing that we feel that in some way your strengths diminish me. <laughs> Why? That doesn't make any sense at some level. I think yeah. as long as we're in Romans 7 territory, uh, Zizek does this in his own perverse way. He talks to his, uh, one of his colleagues, Romilia. She, she wrote a brilliant book on the law, by the way. And he just praises the book at the beginning of the, you know, in the foreword. 
And he says, you know, I love this book so much that I wish you had been run over by a truck. <laughs> and that people would have credited me with this brilliance. You know, we're all kind of familiar with, with this thing that can get a grip on us. Yeah. And I think that one, yeah. that we can cross over and have love for other people, love, you know, and, and God. I think once we understand God is not a threat to us, mm -hmm. that God has established us corporately together, uh, I think that that enables loving corporate relationship with, with others. My phrase that, that helps me is, simple, the presence of Christ. And uh, my most favorite is John 15, abide in Christ. And of course, uh, speaking of John, there's dwelling in the temple. There's dwelling in uh, the house of the Lord in the Psalms. And to me, that is it. That is the, that's the portal. That's, that's the, the most salient to me and most familiar and helpful description i use it a lot in my ministry at the bedside is that it is the presence of christ that displaces that false self it pushes out all competition between those who are wrapped up in the false self it his presence uh constitutes us and makes us whole so that we're not a fragmented self uh, and we're not a broken body of joined to sin and death and disintegrating so that's it to me i mean you could go on and on but that's i think what paul's message is uh i mean put in terms of early romans the righteousness of god is revealed not by well it's just it's revealed in one person it's in christ and it's his presence in this world that is enlightening about our circumstances, our our condition, enlightening us uh, about who we are, enlightening us about our future and the reason we're here. It's always God's presence, Christ's presence, uh, and our solidarity with Him. I can't get to it. That the people are actually made right, mm -hmm. and we've given up the legal definition of righteousness. Uh, and we understand, no, we're not talking about law. We're talking about, no, you ain't right. There's something wrong with you. And Paul has just described what's wrong with you. We're in an agonistic relationship with ourselves and others, a murderous relationship. It's deadly. And we're made right. I think that gets it. Yeah, that's And that, too, is there in between seven and eight. Seven, dangs ain't right. It's the sinful, oppressive predicament. And then chapter 8, I, as I understand it, N.T. Wright's doing a whole book on chapter 8. Uh, and chapter 8 describes how the work of Christ changes up this damnable existence described in chapter 7. The, the punishing effects of the law of sin and death, they no longer condemn as God has condemned the law of sin and death, 8, 1 to 3. We live in, you know, chapter 7, we live in the lie. Chapter 8, we have the truth. And truth and lie 
function here together. Suddenly, truth isn't just a historical or philosophical or propositional truth. It's this personal exposure of a deception in which Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is, that we're at stake in this truth. That personhood, our personhood is, is at stake. And chapter 8, he talks about uh, that there is a disobedience unto death that is people cannot obey God. They are hostile to God. That is, they're, they're subject to this kind of oppressive death-dealing existence that's undone. I'll, do, I'll go through these last ones real quick. In chapter 7, life in the flesh. Chapter 8, life in the, in the body of Christ. And we, I've done several blogs and talked, but I think you all know enough. When we say flesh, we're not just talking about bodies, but as Paul describes it in 723, in my, in my members, in the flesh, that sin dwells within me, that is in my flesh. That is, he's, he's not talking about the body per se, but he's talking about the sin principle. This is the most confusing part of David Bentley Hart, I think the most atrocious part of Hart, that he thinks, oh, that Paul is a dualist and is kind of over and, and, and no, Paul's not a dualist. Paul, when he talks, is talking about the flesh, he is talking about a sin principle. I think that's very clear. Uh, I wonder if Paul's talking about, like, if speaking of using other words, the flesh is synonymous with the imminent frame or uh, the life under the sun, you know, that there's, yes, given a certain sort of limited perspective of who we are as our best guess, the flesh, using the, the phrase or the word the flesh is a way of putting a signifier on on that, but the flesh as in the body of Christ is still flesh, right? It's still human flesh, but it's it's Christ's flesh. It's our, it's his body. We're members of it. It's a completely different picture than the flesh uh, in the imminent frame, fragmented and floundering and in a struggle. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they, that gets it. Right, it confuses me a lot, and I'm never quite sure what he means. But he he does a yeah. I quote a phrase here, and whatever he means by it, I'll translate it in the way I think it meant. He says because God has dealt with sin in the flesh and pro provided new life for the body. I I think that's quite literally true in the way we've described it. Once we understand the way that flesh is a principle the sin principle that we've been describing that, as you say, Brian, is dependent upon the imminent frame. I'm not sure that's what right means, but let's say it is. What did, <laughs> would you repeat uh, the sentence that right used? The reason there is now no condemnation, that's me, is, quote, because God has dealt with sin in the flesh. That is, Christ has come in the flesh because sin dwells within me. That is, in my flesh, and Christ has dealt with sin in the flesh. I'm always suspicious Wright is still doing a bit of penal substitution. But I, I think we can read that sentence at least 
No, I, we can even use the language of substitution, but it's not penal substitution that Christ is undoing the sin principle. I think right is just always constantly pushing back against Bart, don't you? I think that's the heart of his resistance to, to a lot of this. He's doing a lot of the right things with Paul and re, re, um, reframing him um, and taking us away from the strict Lutheran. But I don't think he can complete it because he's not a committed, you know, he, he doesn't buy in completely to Bart's Christocentrism contribution. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. The, I actually, John DePew and I discussed this, and mm -hmm. I like that. I don't know if you've read; they do a good job in their book with N.T. Wright. But I, I've read this elsewhere with Campbell. You know, Wright is always working a kind of chronological frame rather than a, a Bartian Christological understanding, so that you have to have certain things unfold. I'll do 9 and 10, and we'll stop. Life in the, there's the agonistic eye versus participation in the unity of the Trinity. Uh, in the chapter, I don't know if you got to it, but I go through and talk about how each person of the Trinity is described in chapter 8. It's a very Trinitarian chapter, but of course the Trinity is not just pictured there in the abstract. The Trinity is our participation throughout. Uh, the Father has sent the Son who leads by the Spirit. And so the Father is the primary agent who created, who subjected creation and hope, who makes all things work together for good, uh, who predestined those he called. Uh, and the communion is in Christ Jesus, who has sent us to be free from the law of sin and death, by condemning sin in the flesh, who then gives life in the Spirit. And Spirit, of course, is there throughout. The Spirit is the source of life. The Spirit empowers walking as Christ walked. The Spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. And maybe a way of summing up all of these points, chapter 7 is about shame and the dynamics of shame. Chapter 8 is about glory and love and entering into to glory and love. Yeah, that's kind of a quick summary of those chapters. But I love this forward, stuff. Yeah, I look forward to seeing um, how 9, 10, and 11 fold into all this, too. All right. We'll do 9, 10, 11 next week. And then the last week, we'll do your project. And looking forward to in-depth <laughs> I'm auditing this course, so. <laughs> uh, well, you just have to speak, uh, shoot from the hip there with us and tell us what you're thinking for a little bit. I'm going to, I'm <laughs> no going preparation to, uh, needed. I'm going to uh, coordinate chapter seven with some country songs. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> like, yeah. I, threw my, dog. I threw my last bottle at the jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> You're cheating heart, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back to N.T. Wright real quick. I was thinking, uh, I think I've told you before about his Gifford lectures and what he does in the in his Gifford lectures, is, uh, which is a, it's a series that um, I think it's 
it's always reflecting on natural law issues. He basically says that the historical Jesus, because he's part of history, is revealing natural law. He kind of does this move where he reframes whatever Bart would be trying to say in his own terms by starting with, I guess, the historical Jesus. He's part of this natural world. So he's also a foundation for natural law. Not that he takes those conclusions mm -hmm. in all the, all the places I'm struggling with that people, and Romans one takes natural law, but um, I thought that's, you know, that might be telling. It's the only place I've, I haven't read extensively N.T. Wright, but I, I did pick he kinda, up that. He kind of does that a bit in Surprised by Hope, I think. Mm -hmm. Like his book about heaven ki kind of yeah. sort of suggests that maybe natural law it or can be could be <clears throat> rethought in terms of like resurrection has to somehow be part of nature too. But mm -hmm. that's interesting. Takes all types, I guess. <laughs> yeah he's hard to pin down for me i i he's you know he uh wants to be a he, calling himself apocalyptic but he's not apocalyptic mm. he's not doing an apocalyptic theology mm. uh he's doing a chronological canonical you know following right. the can canon he's still doing some form of penal substitution, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't know that he calls it that. He's got fancy language that all the sin of Israel is heaped up on Christ. Hey, but um, I was going to say, and maybe I'll find it and send it to y'all. I, I came across a YouTube video when I was searching for just so I could take in more of what Douglas Campbell had to say as we were starting this course. I found it and didn't get to get very far into it, but when N.T. Wright came to Duke down here, there was a panel that included, I remember N.T. Wright was sitting on one end of the table and Douglas Campbell was sitting mm -hmm. on the other. There were others there in between them, I guess. I think um, Richard Hayes was one of them. Mm -hmm. So they they actually kind of talk about um, their differences uh, in that panel. And it's probably and it's connected for sure to um, N.T. Wright's you know, addressing, I think, some of the challenges mm. brought by not specifically Campbell necessarily, but some of the understanding of his work uh, in that context. So I, I'll look that up and maybe send a link. Oh, yeah, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sounds good. I'm, I'm putting out part two tomorrow. And in the in the conversation we do, he take I ask him to address that issue of between the, what is the disagreement between Campbell and Wright. Oh, and, nice! And, and they, he does a good job, and it, I, it, I found it very helpful. Yeah, it's a great like I I'm about two thirds of the way through his book, and it's great. Like it's I I'm really excited to do it with people at my church <laughs> so yeah once yeah once yeah. it's out so yeah he was a really well-spoken guy and and clear very clear right very i thought so yeah, yeah. He, he seems to me to be eager to that may be a strong word but he does seem eager to 
practice talking about all that he's learning and writing and, and interacting with people who actually get it and are asking questions like you, like us. So he seemed to relish the the opportunity to connect with us, to, to talk with us. And there's all these brilliant young guys out there. Mm. And of course, the, you know, the way the academy is, they don't have jobs teaching. And so I keep thinking, boy, I wish I could tap in to pick up uh, some of these guys. And of course, I can't. You have to charge more than 150 bucks, Paul. <laughs> I, you know, I could give them that, but uh, it's something, you know. Mm. So, but anyway, I keep thinking, boy, I wish I could gather these mm. guys up. I've asked um, uh, Jordan Wood. Yeah, uh, very cool. Do you see anything over the curvature of the earth on the horizon for uh, for us besides that? Or uh, I will continue to work my way through the catalog. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you have requests, uh, let me know. But this class, I'm just going back and, and working my way back through uh, consecutively. Is this this Brian? You never, neither Brian or Jim. You didn't have Romans before, did you? First time. I yeah. do remember when I first started listening in on the podcast. You were talking about Romans, so you might have been just by the time I came on. You were just maybe having just finished teaching a class on Romans. I may have, yeah. May have. When when did you start listening? Tom warp has happened, as they called it, COVID time. I, I really couldn't tell you the difference between one year and four years ago. <laughs> I never can. I never, I can yeah. never keep track. Yeah. Great. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks. Great to see y'all. Nice All to right. see you, guys. Thank care. you. Bye. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.